Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Bubinghausen. Today is Tuesday, May 26, 2020, and the following is the recording from our Bible study this morning at 10 a.m. We went through um, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. It's the last half of the chapter that we started. We started the first half last week, and we continue on through chapter 6, uh, making actually really good headway, um, depend, given the uh, subject matter that we, just, we covered last week. But um, we spend about half of our time covering more of that subject matter from last week to give it its due diligence uh, our uh, due diligence on the subject because it has to do with eternal salvation and um, uh, apostasy and warning and and how that plays out a little bit in in, in our daily lives as Christians with other Christians as well, warning them uh, in certain circumstances. Anyways, um, before we begin the uh, recording, uh, I'd like to make... um, Another appeal to anybody who's in the Fredericksburg area or uh, close by, uh, if you'd like to come by for Bible study on Tuesdays at 10 a.m., you're more than welcome to come uh, and be a part of uh, what we do here. Uh, we are still practicing social distancing, so uh, our sanctuary is set up. We're meeting in a nice big space. We're not in close quarters or anything like that. Uh, we have people sitting separately from each other. Um, and we keep it within an hour, so there's not a whole lot of time in one place uh, to raise the um, rate uh, or risk or anything like that. So if you're in Fredericksburg or you're in the area close by in Gillespie County or something like that, and you'd like to join us on Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m., you're more than welcome to do so. That is unless you are sick or um, at really high risk and are told by your doctors not to be engaged in those sorts of activities. But um, we encourage all who are able to come to come, and uh, anyone who cannot, we hope you enjoy listening from afar, and that uh, we pray that one day you may be able to join us. Anyways, uh, we will continue on with our study from this morning, which will cover Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. The Lord be with you. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we struggle here, as we struggle here below with divisions among us, searching for peace among men, remind us daily of the peace of heaven purchased through the body, um, purchased through the bloody death and triumphant resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit is one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. So we want to tell them to come join us, <laughs> or so they can uh, be a part of this too. So okay, what did we leave off with last time? Because uh, I know that some people are joining us for the first time and for the first time in a long time. Uh, so it's good to see people back. Um, so what did we talk about last time? Where where are we in the book of Hebrews right now? What's that? 613. 6.13. And what did we talk about <clears throat> last time, just as a quick recap, uh, so that we get people caught up and on the right track with things. <clears throat> uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. What did we, what did we talk about here? Um, it was kind of a, a hard passage, wasn't it? Uh, at least a little harsh. Uh, what does it basically say? Warning to the church. Yeah, it's a warning. Warning against apostasy, right? About falling away. Uh, I just noticed that one of our little canopy things out there fell down. Uh, okay. So we had to add that to the list. Um, now that's on the podcast, so that's okay. Um, okay, so yeah, we talked about a warning against apostasy, against falling away. That uh, 
when you read something like uh, verse 4, right, for it is impossible, uh, we, well, we have to have it in context, right? So I'll just read this for us. Uh, Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 12. So uh, the author writes, Therefore, let us leave the... The elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God and uh, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often, falls, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not for, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. If we desire each one of you to show that and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have uh, the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but but yeah, man, me, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises so we read all of that in context right because if we only stop on verse 4 we get bogged down in the issue of impossibility, right? So we see verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And we talked last time about how this means... You know, when, when you look very closely at the structure of this sentence and the Greek and everything that's involved, I, this, this bothered me to say, you know, what, is, what does that mean it's impossible to restore this person? That God just can't or won't do it? Uh, that he desires the death of those and, and the damnation of those who don't repent? That's not true. He desires that all men would, would um, come to faith and be saved by the grace of Christ, right? So what do we do with this? We understand that um, there are these things that for someone who has been baptized, for someone who has heard the word of God, who has been redeemed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, if they fall away, typically it's because they're trying to save themselves in another way than through Christ, right? They think, I can find a better way, I can do something better than just, you know, what Jesus has done for me. And that's what's impossible. You cannot be redeemed by any other way than by Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying, that through all these things, to find another way is foolishness. It's, it's, it's impossible. Not that God um, can't save, but that he says, I won't. Because there's only one way through Christ. Um, now that's not us condemning people, and like that's that's what uh, Pastor Cluck brought up last week. That we're getting into the mind of God right now, 
that we don't know who is truly saved and who's not. We are not the ones who judge. God is the one who judges. Yet at the same time, um, we can tell certain things by, by the fruit, right? Uh, not that we should be looking to our good works in terms of our justification, right? Where we stand with God. We don't look to the good works that we do um, to say, I am right with God totally, right? Um, hello? <laughs> it happens. It's okay. I'm sorry. You're okay. Um, but we, what we do is we take a passage like this and we say, you know, verses 7 through 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So just to wrap this, trying to keep it brief, because there is a lot here, and to wrap it all up within a few minutes is hard to do, that there's a warning here for those who believe to say, you know, hold on to the things that God has given you. Hold on to the faith that God has cultivated within you. Hold on to the grace that God provides for you, and you can only do that by the power of God. Right? So trust in Him and His promise, which we'll get into in this last half of, verse, of, of chapter 6, that there's this promise that has been given to you, and we are to hold on to it by faith, trusting that God is the giver of all good things, especially eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. That... If we go seeking for another way of salvation, if we forsake the salvation that we've been given, thinking that there's a better way, then we fall into, uh, you know, we fall into a trap set by Satan and our own desires. Right? That in in the end, uh, we will find we will find that we were gravely mistaken. If that's the case. Um, but in, in the same sense, you know, uh, we aren't the ones who judge, but, but, uh, at the same time, you know, if someone dies, and this is just the sad fact of life, if somebody dies and, um, there, what, there isn't really anything there that they did that made a good confession of faith. Um, let's say they were baptized, but then they never came to church ever again. Uh, that they lived their life as if there were no, as if there was no God. They did whatever they want and was pleasing in their own eyes. We can trust that God is good and gracious. That there is a possibility that that person had been saved, but our assurance of their salvation is greatly diminished because of the life that they lived that wasn't in accordance with God's will. And that's just a sad reality to say, we can't say one way or the other where that person is right now. We pray that God would be merciful. Um, and we trust in Him for, all, for what happened to them because there's not much there that we can say. Now, if we have you know, someone who has been baptized... Uh, they, they attended faithfully. Uh, it's the other side of it, too, that they, they attend church faithfully, yet outside of church they live their life however they want to live. I mean, that's hypocritical, too. So there's, there's all these warnings that go along with this. Living our lives um, as the branches that are a part of the vine who is Christ. You know, that apart from Christ we can do nothing. That apart from him, we can only bear bad fruit. That in Christ, that is where the true gain comes from. So hold fast to Christ and what he has done for us. Um, and understand that there is no way to be saved apart from what Christ has done for you. To, find, to try and find something else is just, it's a fool's errand. Alright? It's harsh words, harsh language, but... It needs to be said, um, especially, you know, at all times, we need to understand that this is not a game. This is serious, eternal consequences are at stake here. But also, 
the writer of Hebrews is not necessarily saying that his audience is part of that group, right? In the last part here, before we move on, verses 9 through 12, he calls them beloved, right? And this is, I think, the only place where he actually does this. He addresses his, uh, his audience as the beloved, um, those who are loved by God, right? He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? So he's saying, what you've been doing has been good. Keep doing that, right? Continue on in patience and endurance. Continue on, um, you know, uh, conditioning your sinful flesh to get up and go when you don't feel like helping your neighbor, right? And helping your neighbor because that's what God wished for you to do, right? Um, doing God's will in joy now because... It's not a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of truly helping our neighbor in their time of need because Christ works through us now. Any questions about this before we move on? Tim. Yeah. Just thinking about this, the, the first part where he's warning and condemning, it appears to be addressed to the individual, but the latter part, 9 through 12, is the praise of the group mm -hmm. function of staying together, staying in the Word, working together, which is pleasing to God. Right. We as individuals, whatever we do is not necessarily pleasing to God, depending on how we do it or why we do it. Right. Um, that's a good. That's a good point. Yeah, because he says, "For you're right. For um, for one." Is it for, in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted, yeah. I mean, I think they're lumping them into that kind of group of people who do fall away, but, I mean, that's an interesting point. I'd have to look closer at the Greek to see if that's what he's getting at. With the individual versus the group, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. You can judge an individual, but it's difficult to judge a group because you don't know the total makeup of the group. And there are all these hypocrites in the church that the warning should be addressed to, and the warning should be addressed to everyone so that they wouldn't yeah. fall away. Right, right. There's no one that's a, there's no one that's above that kind of reproach. Uh, pastors ought to be uh, above above reproach, um, but sometimes, you know, because pastors are sinful too, they need to be reminded of certain things as well. Um, these are good reminders for all the saints, for everybody. Um, and yeah, we have this understanding in the church of the, you know, it depends on how you talk about these things, these theological terms, the hidden church or the invisible church versus the visible church, um, you know, what it, what it means. There's a lot of ink that's been spilt on all this stuff about who's part of the true church, you know, the spiritual, like... If people come on Sunday and they sit in the pews, I can't sit there and say, okay, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight true members of the church here, and the rest of y'all are just, you know, liars and hypocrites, and you don't actually belong to the church. I can't do that, okay? I can't sit there and say, I'm, only, I'm just going to preach to these few people because they are the ones who really get it, right? That I have to preach to everybody who is before me um, not knowing exactly who is and who isn't part of the invisible, the hidden church that you, know, you can't see people's hearts. You can't tell who truly is saved, but you can look at these things, these external things like baptism and receiving the body and blood of Christ and Holy Communion and say, I've got a better idea, you know, uh, because I trust not that they are coming to do these things, 
but I trust what God is doing through these things. I trust God's promise in his working through these things to say that, you know, I don't know for sure, but I can be about 98, like 95 to 98% sure, roughly, that this person is with Christ when they die. Uh, I mean, beyond that, though, I can't, I can't say with 100% certainty, <laughs> you know, uh, because, that's, because only God can. I'm not God, so I can't say 100% this person is damned or 100% this person is saved, right? Yeah. But Paul addresses that in Corinthians, mm -hmm. chapter 5, where that's the root concept. We as a group live among our people and we see the action, so if there is external evidence of that, there's a way to address that. Each individual goes to the person that's offended first and are offending and addresses it and then brings to the congregation and the group. And that's that's first Corinthians five. Right. Can, you, Nine to can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, it addresses that if anybody sees anybody sinning, uh, the church is supposed to address it, and if they repent, then it's fine. But if they don't, the church is supposed to take action and separate themselves from it. Mm -hmm. That's true, and that's, that's a good point, that if you see someone who is living openly in sin, it is the duty of the church as fellow believers to address them because their eternal salvation is at stake. That's right, you're right, that we as brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be, able, ought to be comfortable enough with each other to where when someone is in open and defiant sin, we should be able to come to them and say, you know, we should, we should be able to come to them and say, this is not me judging you, but this is me telling you this because I love you and that I care for you. That if you continue on this road, lying, cheating, stealing, committing adultery, whatever, drunkenness. openly, yeah, drunkenness, you come, to, you come to church and you're obviously intoxicated. You know, or, or you're going around town and you're obviously drunk, drunk driving or whatever. Or you're, um, uh, you even have like coarse language, right? Uh, that, that's not befitting of a Christian, right? You're not living as, as if you're a new creation in Christ. Not that you need to be perfect, but like we talked about last time, bearing fruit uh, in keeping with repentance, right? That being a Christian doesn't mean that we are perfect. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we've, we've got it all right and all together. In fact, the more, we, uh, <laughs> the more we know, the more we see how sinful we are, right? Uh, the more we go along in our lives as Christians and we say, and we actually learn more about God's law and, and, and his will for our lives, the more we can look and say, ooh, man, I am not so good. You know, that's, that's why when we went through um, Grace Upon Grace and doing this sort of um, evaluation of our conscience and our, uh, our state before God, our status before God, you know, this confessional mirror of going through the Ten Commandments and saying, even from commandment one, has there been anything that I have put in my life before God? Money, goods, uh, pride, ambition, family even, friends. Have I put these things before God? Whoa. I can't even get past the first question without finding ways that I have broken God's law. So yeah, the more we go along the more we, uh, we, we, we understand what it means to be repentant and the more we ought to reach out to somebody who is either willingly or unwillingly struggling with some outward sin, drunkenness, slander, uh, I'd even say gossip, I'd even say, um, you know, greed, um, anything like that. We need to be able to approach that person in love and, as Paul says, speak the truth in love, not acting holier than thou, 
but doing this for their own good and saying, we're saying this because we care about you, and that it's not good what you're doing. Taking it a step further, it goes to Romans, it talks about that if you, if we don't address it as a church, we're complicit and we're guilty as well. Right. Um, and yes, and we'll address this real quick and then we'll move on to the next part, but you're raising good stuff here that as a, even as a pastor, um, if someone is open, is, is in open and unrepentant sin, that we need to handle these things in the right way with so many people coming to address the issue, the elders or other people, other brothers and sisters coming and joining and calling this person to repentance, that if they do not repent, let's just say, um, if someone is, let's just go with one of the easier ones, because if we get into the, the things that are debatable, it's not really so easy. Let's go with uh, someone who is committing adultery, right? Living in sin even, or something like that. Um, and this is kind of something that pastors have been literally, uh, well, really figuratively persecuted for, that they're dealing with someone, let's say, who wants to get married, in the church, according to the will of God, but they're living together. And the pastor has to say, you know, are you living together? And if they say, yeah, what's the big deal? They say, well, the big deal is that's you're living as husband and wife when you've not been brought together in God's sight as husband and wife. You need to repent. And they'll say, well, what do we have to do? Well, you need to separate, at least for a certain amount of time. Until the wedding, you know, and even even that short separation can bring fruit of really people understanding just how serious this is. But if someone says, forget that, I'll just go down to the courthouse and get married and you'll never see me again. Or I'll just go down to the courthouse and get married and I'll see you on Sunday. I mean, what am I supposed to do or what is any pastor supposed to do in that situation? That if you don't address it at the very least, it's a sticky situation. If you don't address it at the very least and warn them that, you know, I, if you come to receive communion, I can't give it to you unless we actually talk about this. To deny someone and ban them from the table for their own good, because if they eat and drink the body and blood of Christ while living in open and unrepentant sin, blatantly, something that serious then in some ways the whole body is guilty of not addressing that situation, right? That sounds harsh, but in a harsh and sinful world, we need to be on our guard and we need to be ready to speak these truths to people for their good and for the good of everybody else who's involved because if someone came to visit, and they knew what was going on with a certain person that was living in open and unrepentant sin, and they saw them just going about their business, everyone shaking their hand and saying, hey, how's it going? And everything's just fine. What's that person who's struggling with their faith coming in fresh off the street or something like that, who, who has been invited, seeing this is how they treat sin? That they give it a high five and say, how you doing? I don't know if I want to be a part of this place, right? So we have to be careful for the sake of things, and we're going to fail in this area. We're not going to be perfect in this area, but we have to do our due diligence as best we can, as God gives us the strength to do, right? So these are not easy things to talk about. This is very hard to talk about. Uh, I'd like for everybody to get along, but when someone is living in open and unrepentant sin, it's got to be addressed, okay? Because people's people's faith and their certainty of salvation, their eternal standing with God, are, it's at stake. Um, okay. <laughs> Starting this off with a bang, aren't we? Um, okay, so let's, let's, let's move on with the rest of our time here, looking at the rest of chapter 6, unless there are some questions. Real quick. Yeah. I just have one comment about the invisible church and the visible church. Sure. The visible church works through the the invisible church works through the visible church. So that, that's why Christ established the physical church on earth. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't have an invisible church because no one would be brought to faith. Mm. Because where where do you hear the word of God or the Holy right. Spirit works? He works in the physical church. Right. That in in the pews on Sunday, those who are part of the invisible or the hidden church are there. Uh, and also as Lutherans, we rightfully understand that just because they're not in our church doesn't mean they're not part of the hidden church, right? We're not sectarians and saying if you're not Lutheran, then you're not saved, right? We don't, we don't say that. We've never said that. We've said always that God can and does work through his word where it's preached, even in a church that is not uh, that would be by all accounts apostate, right? Uh, or, or in serious error at the very least, right? So we as Lutherans have never said Methodists can't be saved. We as Lutherans have never said Roman Catholics cannot be saved. We as Lutherans have never said that any other denomination can't be saved because God works through his word. And even in those churches, the word is preached and the Spirit work, works and moves where He wills, right? So, even in those churches, yeah, members of the invisible, the hidden church are there, for sure. Uh, yet, I would say, and I must say, according, you know, for the sake of my conscience, that when you go to other churches, um, and uh, they are teaching certain things that are not heretical, but heterodox, right? They're just off the mark a bit. Uh, something in the, line, in the lines of, um, uh, what is it? Something along the lines of um, doing an altar call or making a choice for Jesus, you know, that we have a bit... We have any say in this sort of thing. It muddies the water, and it's not healthy teaching to the point where, you know, try not to get too far in the weeds here, but uh, it's like if you're part of another church that doesn't preach the word of God in its purity, let's say that they, you go to a church that, you know, speaks in tongues or that believes that Holy Communion is only just a symbol, baptism is just a symbol, um, or that we have any say in our salvation as far as what we do with our works or what we say or this, that, or the other. Or allows homosexuality. Or allows homosexuality that blesses it even, you know, that um, condones it. That in those churches, though the Word of God is preached to some degree, um, those Errors in teaching are harmful. Um, and they could possibly lead you to losing your faith. It's like if you have a broken arm, right? You can probably go through your life with that broken arm, not having it taken care of and mended the way that it needs to be. Or you could just ignore it and, and, and just... You, know, you could just... You could just ignore it, let it go. You know, let's say you have some, some you have something wrong, right? Um, even just to really go over the top and say you have cancer, and you say, "Uh, no big deal. I can overlook that. It's okay." Well, if you don't treat it, if you don't address the issue, then that could lead to your death, right? Sure, you could be fine. Sure, your broken, your broken bone could heal naturally and, just, and be just fine. Or the marrow could get into your bloodstream and you could die, right? Like it, it's a serious thing to where uh, false doctrine or errors in teaching can lead to you losing your faith. It's not a certainty. I can't say that one way or the other for 100% degree of certainty, but I can say that you are in danger of that happening, that it is a real possibility that we should be aware of, and it's not something we should take lightly, right? That if you talk to somebody and you say, uh, like I was, I, was in, uh, I was somewhere and, um, you know, of course I'm wearing my collar, 
and someone uh, comes to me and says, you know, where, where are you a pastor at? And I say, resurrection. And she says, you know, well, what church is that? Uh, and I said, it's Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And it's like, okay, so what's the differences between the other Lutheran churches? And I say, well, one of the differences is, you know, the ordination of women. We, we, we don't ordain women because that we, we believe clearly shows, the Bible says, that's not something we should do. And then she says, well, I don't think God really cares about those things. And so then I very gently say, well, I, you know, I think he does because his word says it. You know? and, and we can agree to disagree on these things, but we have to address these things as plainly as possible to say these differences in teaching do add up. They do amount to something that we can be in harmony with other Christians and other denominations to a certain extent. But at some point, um, we have to be honest about these things, right? That doesn't mean we have to be harsh. That doesn't mean we have to be cruel. That means we have to be honest and say we can agree where we can agree and let and we disagree on these things and that's just the way it is we have to stand strong on good solid teaching because in good solid teaching comes comfort and certainty like uh what is that peanuts cartoon where uh it's raining a lot and this is very pertinent because we just had a huge rainstorm right it's raining a lot and lucy is worried because she says what if what if the world floods again? And who is it, Linus, right? He says, he says, oh, it's not going to flood again because God promised Noah after the great flood that he, would no long, that he wouldn't flood the whole earth again. And she says, oh, that brings a lot of comfort. And he said, that's what sound theology does, right? It brings comfort to us, and it should. And when we forsake that, then we run a risk. We are risking that comfort. We are risking that assurance, okay? Yes. The radio program, the uh, child's program, we listen to every Saturday. And it always ended this, this story with, or the time with, uh, okay, you go to your church and I'll go to mine, but let's walk along together. And I think that's a pretty good idea. I think it's a, I think that's not a bad idea. But while you're walking them to their church, uh, Probably doesn't hurt to encourage them and say, hey, why don't you come check out my church sometime? I mean, we can, we can go our separate ways on Sunday mornings, uh, yet at the same time, if we care about the truth, and if we want to make sure that other people know that truth, at some point, we need to encourage people to seek that truth out. That's not being harsh. That's not saying, you know, that I begrudge someone for going to the Methodist church or the other Lutheran churches. Uh, but at the same time, you know, um, we should stand on the truth and we should encourage people to seek that out as well. Uh, I would hope that each church here in town is teaching the truth. I hope so, but I can't be sure. They're not. No. <laughs> They're not. Well, we're not going to go too deep into this right now. We're going to keep on going here. But uh, we can save this for another day uh, as far as talking about the differences and whatnot. Because um, we are in a small town and we have to keep the peace somehow. Uh, but at the same time, like I said, we have to stand our ground on certain things. Because right? uh, the truth is important. All right. Uh, let's keep going here. Let's, let's finish out chapter 6. We've got, we got a little bit of time left here. And um, yeah, we've got plenty of time. Plenty of time to get through it. We're going to go through chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And for the sake of the microphone here, I'll, I'll read them and then we'll, we'll go through it, okay? So, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, um, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise 
the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong uh, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the 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 inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so, it's a lot here. Um, so what, let me just ask this for the sake of, of getting some conversation started here. What we see here in verses um, 13 and 16, this mention of an oath, right, um, or a promise, right, that, um, uh, that in 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, he made an oath by himself or to, you know, of himself. What, what is the purpose of taking an oath um, in making a promise or a statement like that? What's the point of an oath? You know, I solemnly swear, something like this, right? What's the point of that? You're trying to assure other people that you're going to tell the truth. Right. You what you say you're going to do. Right. You ensure the validity or you that, that you're going to follow through on this thing, right? Um, integrity. What's that? The integrity. Right. You uh, uphold your integrity, right? That your word is your bond, right? That in the ancient world, because it was more of... Um, it was more of an, uh, a spoken tradition, right? They didn't, they didn't necessarily have all the documents that we have to sign. You know, we have notaries and things like that, that you have to go get certain forms of validation in making sure that something is binding, right? In the ancient world, um, someone would make a promise, and then to guarantee that promise, they made an oath, and they would swear uh, to uh, the emperor, they would swear to their god or something like that, depending on what god they worshipped at the time of their pagans. And so um, the promises were backed up by solemn oaths. Um, and so it ensures the integrity of what you're promising. So what does it mean that, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. What, is, what does that mean? Because God was a supreme being. Right. There's no one higher than God, right? He has no one else to swear by except for himself, right? Um, that he is the highest authority that there is. That's, that's a confession of that, right? So um, when we uh, make a when we come up for, uh, you know, confirmation, right, you make a solemn oath that you would rather die than fall away from the faith, right? And who do you swear by? You, you swear by the name of God. Uh, or if you're in court, right, you swear, you know, do you, do you, swear, to hear, uh, you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you God, right? And, and say, I do, right? You're swearing by a higher name than yourself. Um, and there are consequences, if you perjure yourself, right, you go to jail. Um, so for God to swear on his own name, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. This is not about, you know, some people might read verse 15, right? And say, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. That the promise was given to him because of his patience, because of his doing. That's not true. He was given this blessing because of what God had promised and sworn to uphold. It wasn't that, that Abraham was so good and so patient and long-suffering that he received this reward. It's because of what God had promised him and that God came through on that promise for him, right? 
It puts it squarely on the shoulders of God, saying that he is the one who makes the promise and he is the one who fulfills the promise. Right? And it's binding, and uh, he follows through. Right? So this is all, all about the assurance of salvation. And that, the promise of God is better than an oath. Right. Well, yeah. The oath, yeah. It's better than any sort of oath we could take. Because we could, uh, you know, if you make a will and you get it signed, notarized, and everything like that, before you die, you can change that will, right? You can, you can go back on your promises that you made to someone and put it in paper that you don't want that to be the case, you want them to get less or whatever. But God doesn't do that, right? Um, he follows through. He doesn't uh, take back what, he's been, what he has promised. Um, for those who trust in him, right? Um, let's see. So yeah, this is, this is all very, very, very much about God and his sure and, certain, sure and certain promise and will for our lives. So um, verse 17, though, um, just to drive the point home, verse 17 refers to God's reason for, for affirming this promise to us also with an oath. And what is that reason? What's the reason for it? So we wouldn't doubt it. Right, yeah. He drives the point home. He says... When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, right? That he drives it even further home um, as, if it, as if it weren't enough for you to receive this promise. Let me, let me also swear by myself that I will fulfill it, okay? Um, so, let me see here. What does it mean, this is going to get into some, some interesting things here about what y'all think, but I'm curious. Um, he says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what does that say about us in terms of how much power we have in that verse there? Yeah, zero. We have, we have no power in and of ourselves that um, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That um, we live in this strange world of now and not yet, right? That this promise of God has been given to us and has been delivered to us to where we, we, are, we are of a... a absolute certainty that we receive full grace and assurance of salvation from God for the sake of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Yet, at the same time, we still suffer from sin and death, disease, famine, plague, all, all these things that are because sin is in the world still. That we are, you know, it's the same paradoxical sort of life that we live of being simultaneously justified and sinners, you know, um, simul used to set the kator, this, this simultaneously saint and sinner, right? Simultaneously justified by the blood of Christ, yet struggling in our own sin at the same time. Can we say we don't have the power, though? Because the Holy Spirit gives us the power to believe. Right, so, so where does that power come from? I guess that's, that's the most important thing is to say, what power we do have, does it come only from us? Where does it come from? The power of the Holy Spirit, right? That is poured out on us by God's grace. And visibly done so in holy baptism, right? That we have received refuge from the sin and pain and torment that Satan would inflict on us in this world. We have found refuge in Christ. We have been covered literally, by God's grace in the water and the word, 
by receiving the holy name of God placed on us to where we now are new creations in Christ. We have died to our sin and risen to new life in Jesus Christ, right? So we have refuge now that whenever the storms may rage and you know, torment us outside in the world or within us because of what's going on around us, where is the only place to find rest? Where is the only place to find rest and refuge? I mean, here, yeah, okay, yeah, here, and you know, in church, right? In all places where God's word is preached, taught, and His sacraments are freely given. But very generally, where can we go to find refuge when we can't go to church? Right. We go to God in prayer, yeah, uh, trusting in what God has done for us in our baptism. That's why certain things, even though it's not in Scripture, you know, making the sign of the cross is a good way to remember. Um, reading, reading your Psalms, learning those by heart, understanding God's promises to us through those, through, through His Word. Um, and what does this do for us according to verse 19? When we have this assurance, like what is that assurance likened to? In verse, thir- in, 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 in verse 19. Holding us steadfast. Yeah, like... A ship anchor. Yeah, like an anchor, right? And where did we... We, we saw this before in the book of Hebrews, right? Um, we saw this before in... Where was it? Chapter 2, right? Um, where he's also warning against uh, neglecting salvation. Um, I'm trying to find it. Version 19, right? Um, like a ship anchor. Well, he talks about how, oh, here it is, Hebrews 2, verse 1. Uh, um, Yeah, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And the word for that drifting away, the the word in Greek for for drifting away, is the same word that's used for a ship that's lost its mooring, right? A ship that doesn't have the anchor that holds it fast to where it needs to be. And also, you you see this in Ephesians 4, 14, where, um, you know, we... Let's actually turn there. Why not? We're in a Bible study. (laughs) Ephesians 4, verse 14. This ties in with what we were talking about before, right? Speaking the truth about these things. Um, We have to get this in context, right? So we'll start at verse 11 here. Ephesians 4, verse 11 and following. Um, Paul writes, St. Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint for which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That speaking the truth in love often means that it may sound harsh, right? To go back to what we were talking about before. That speaking the truth in love is done, you know, is, is done when we may face someone who's going to be angry at us, right? Um, tough love, yeah. 
the very literal sense of the word. You, tough love in the fact that you see someone who is actively harming themselves, actively engaging in behavior or activities that could that that have a very real um, possibility of harming their salvation and status with God, that you go to them and you say, you need to repent. You need to stop doing this. This is not how a baptized Christian acts, right? That you may not be perfect, but what you're doing right here, specifically in this time and place, in this way, this is wrong, right? And we say this because we love you. We say this because we care for you, and we don't want you to think that this is okay, right? Um, you have to say this, this, these things to certain people at certain times, or else in some ways you become complacent, and you become, uh, well, to certain people you may seem that you condone it, right? But we have to be... Uh, in these ways, we have to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, right? Coming to each other in love to speak about these harsh realities about things. So. I think there's another element that's important here. Okay. The, the rest of it, there was another part of the promise that God gave there that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through their seed. That includes us. It wasn't just to the Right. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Good point. That is for all people, including us. Yes. That um, this book uh, is uh, this 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 book is. I think it was rightly included as divinely inspired because you could read this book like you like like you could read the Gospels, and when they're talking about the disciples, when they're talking about uh, when, when uh, John writes in his epistles, when he says, but you, beloved, do this and this and this, and believe this and this and this, that you can say he's not just talking about his specific audience, he's talking to me too. He's talking to us right here and now in this place. It is always relevant, and like you said, this promise is for all nations. It's for all people, including us. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's very important to remember that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the, the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're running low on time, but what do we do with that last part there? That last bit, those last few verses of... What, is, what does this mean that we have this, um, this hope that enters into the, the inner place behind the curtain? What curtain is that referring to? The Holy of Holies. Yeah. In the temple? Yeah. Or somewhere else? In the heavenly temple. Is that what you're saying? See, this is the thing, is that it's, it's kind of ending, it's, it's um, cryptic, it's enigmatic, that we don't really know exactly what he's talking about. He's making an allusion to possibly what he talked about before, where Jesus is our great high priest, that he intercedes on our behalf in the heavenly places before God the Father as the great high priest who, know, who knew no sin and atones for our sins only, not for his, right? But in this era, the priest was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. Right. Now, at Christ's jurisdiction, that curtain was torn too. Right. That's why he references in the order of Melchizedek. Right. Christ is a priest and our king. Right, like, like we talked about before, it's interesting that the author of Hebrews doesn't say in the order of the Levitical priesthood, but he says in the order of Melchizedek, that it, go, that it predates um, 
the Levites and um, the sons of Aaron, right, who could only be high priests. Uh, it predates these things. It was in the workings before all that, but those were just types and shadow of what will be fulfilled in Christ. And can y'all see, real quick, to close this out, we'll, we'll, we'll stop here. Can y'all see a connection with what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, where Christ intercedes for us in the heavenly places? Can you see a connection to that with something we just celebrated a couple days ago? The ascension, right? That in ascending to heaven, to the heavenly places, to the seat of power, the right hand of the Father, Jesus intercedes on our behalf as the perfect sacrifice. He doesn't continually sacrifice himself over and over again, but he shows his flesh and blood as the perfect sacrifice to say, those, those who believe in me are, are now justified by my work. That as our great high priest, he goes into the holiest of holies in heaven or wherever it is. You know, it's not a physical location. We're not going to say that. I say, I point up just to kind of give you a reference of what's, what's, what's going on here. That Jesus intercedes for us with his flesh and blood on our behalf. And he also, now that he's in the seat of power comes to us in his body and blood on the altar. It's, it's, it's a wonderful mystery, like I kind of talked about in the sermon on Sunday. It's a wonderful mystery, and that, that is our hope, that, you know, it's cryptic. But I think in his commentary, Dr. Kleinig is very, I mean, he, he puts it very well where he says, you know, that our hope is this embodiment our hope is embodied in Christ, who enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that he blazes the trail for us, that you know, our redemption is not just for our souls, but also for our bodies, that on the last day, we will be raised from the dead, and we will live eternally with Christ in body and soul, right? Glorified as he was on the third day. Melchizedek was referred to because he was the only in recorded history of being a priest and a king. And a king, right? And yeah. Jesus is our priest and our king. Right, and we're going to look more and more because Melchizedek is referenced again later on, and we're going to get to that um, actually in the very next chapter, what it means to be uh, in the order of Melchizedek, right? Um, and we'll look at that next week in chapter 7, but um, do we have any, any questions about this, any comments about what we've talked about? I mean, this adds, it's, this is a much nicer section than last time, because last time we were talking about the impossibility of people to be saved uh, based on their Denial of Christ, right? But now we're talking about those who are in Christ, the assurance of what that means. The hope that we have that is embodied in the flesh and blood of Christ, right? Um, and one last thing, I thought this was kind of interesting from uh, Dr. Kleinig. I, I, I like it, his little, at the end of his little sections, he talks about how the church has used this section of the text in the church, and he says, it's not, this part of Hebrews is not in any um, lectionary. It's not read re as a regular text um, in the church. But what he does say is that, um, let me find it real quick here. In setting, divine service setting three, the, uh, the uh, tried and true standard of uh, the Lutheran church as far as the... Um, the divine service, he says that it's interesting that you see that this passage provides the traditional Lutheran formula for the liturgical confession of sins in a service of the word. It is retained as part of the congregation's confession of sins to God in setting three of the divine service. Um, you know, this, this part where uh, we're talking about fleeing to God for refuge. 
right? Um, let me see here. It says, where is that? He says, um, Wherefore we flee for refuge to your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That uh, we, oh, here it is. It's in the other column that we don't usually use. That's right. That's why I don't know it very well. Um, where the pastor says, Almighty God, our maker and redeemer, we pour sinners confess unto you that we are by nature sinful and unclean and that we have sinned against you by thought, word, and deed. Wherefore, we flee for refuge to your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the congregation responds after that, um, likewise. So uh, it's kind of interesting how some of these things go into our service of the word, our liturgical life in the church how they're influenced by that as well. Um, and uh, how in saying these things week after week, we can be assured of that comfort as well. Uh, any, any questions about this? I don't know on the last verses, but I think he's trying to drive on the point that you're only saved through Christ and there's no other way to get there. Right, that Christ is the only one who can intercede for you on your behalf uh, that it goes along with what we talked about at the beginning of chapter 6, that there is no other way to salvation besides Christ. That when we are adamant about this, and this is the last thing I'll say, I promise, we are adamant about this saying that when we're serious about it, um, I, think, I think in a lot of ways we, we've become very um, complacent in just kind of letting people do their thing. Um, and not driving home the point saying, yes, you are free to do what you want to do, but only for so long. Right? That in the end, a reckoning will come. And for those who are not in Christ, that reckoning day will be a day of harsh judgment. Uh, and when we do that, we rightfully speak the word of God and we rightfully warn people against this but then comfort them when they flee for some refuge, saying, what am I supposed to do? Like the apostles, be baptized in the name of Christ and repent, right? So it's like, repent of your sins, receive the forgiveness of God for the sake of Christ, and all is forgiven. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be much of a promise. All right, well, we're over time, but it's okay. Covered some good stuff, good conversations. I appreciate that from everybody. Um, to close things off, let's, let's uh, do as we usually do and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, 